Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Hello and welcome to Series 2, Episode 4 of Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence's Compliance Clarified podcast. My name is Susanna Hammond and I'm Senior Regulatory Intelligence Expert here at TRRI. And today I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by Brett Wolfe, Senior AML Correspondent, and Nathan Lynch, APAC Managing Editor. And we're going to discuss where we are now on all things financial crime. That's aspects of financial crime from the changing stance on sanctions coming from the US to the recent actions of the Global AML Standard Setting Financial Action Task Force, they're known as FATF, which has vowed to continue to crack down on opaque transactions tied to cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin. Now, FATF has also focused attention on trade-based money laundering, describing it as one of the most complex and adaptive methods of money laundering, and noting that it is widely used by many illicit actors to disguise and move the proceeds of crime alongside those legitimate trade transactions. Now, we're also going to take a look at ransomware, Colonial Pipeline being just one high-profile example recently, and the associated financial crime implications with that. Now, as mentioned in previous episodes, the second series of Compliance Clarified has a theme of external threats. And one of those is the extraterritorial rigor of US anti-money laundering and sanctions enforcement. And on that, compliance functions around the world need to be aware of the implications of the AML Act of 2020. Now, that will cause the US Treasury Department to create or amend at least a dozen regulations and create a beneficial ownership registry, which by some accounts may actually make compliance more rather than less burdensome for firms. We're not stopping there. There is also a technology angle to financial crime and technology costs have risen for many firms as they've invested in new solutions to help them in particular deal with the pandemic. As just one example, with more customers opening accounts online, institutions have turned to artificial intelligence, machine learning to help them with that onboarding and verification. Now, there's a flip side to that. In some cases, that has left those firms open to synthetic identity fraud, yet another kind of financial crime. But even as additional institutions are adopting technology, banks and third-party providers are working really very hard to address all of those inherent vulnerabilities that are being so badly exploited by tech-savvy criminals. Now, with all of that, and there is a huge amount of financial crime and its implications to consider, Brett, what has changed with the Biden administration on the approach to US sanctions? Is it a brand new approach? Yes, well, thank you, Susanna. Uh, First off, I would note that all US administrations love to use sanctions, and that isn't going to change with the Biden administration. Um, But that said, I I think there has been a lot of thought uh, put into this uh, with the incoming administration or with the new administration um, in terms of uh, what approach specifically it wants to take uh, with regard to particular nations, but also overall um, in terms of uh, there's a very thorough review going on uh, as we speak at the U.S. Treasury Department, uh, looking at a number of factors uh, related to U.S. sanctions, including uh, whether or not they're actually effective 
uh, in reaching their goals of changing behavior, uh, but also looking at uh, what the impact is on things such as humanitarian aid. Um, the Biden administration has, has expressed concern about, you know, potential unintended consequences. So we'll see if that actually leads to any change in terms of the way uh, sanctions are, are administered. Uh, but as we've already seen, there's been a, a move away from sort of blanket sanctions uh, toward more targeted sanctions. Uh, we've seen that time and again. Uh, with a goal of affecting governments and corrupt individuals while avoiding punishing ordinary citizens. And uh, the Biden administration has made very clear that that is its goal. Um, there, the administration is also looking at whether the overuse of U.S. sanctions um, could actually push the world away from use of the U.S. dollar and actually uh, negatively impact the, uh, the ability to use sanctions to, uh, to, to cause change in, in other jurisdictions. Uh, so a lot going on right now. Um, obviously, uh, the situation with Iran, you know, where we were part of the, uh, the global nuclear agreement, um, and then the last administration pulled out of that agreement. So uh, the Biden administration um, is working to, to formulate its policy and uh, figure out uh, how the U.S. Uh, perhaps can rejoin and uh, what needs to happen in order to, uh, to, to make that possible in terms of concessions from both sides. Um, so right now, um, you know, the Biden administration stepped in and uh, issued sanctions uh, in the Burren-Myanmar context. And uh, that was very telling uh, because those sanctions looked an awful lot and the executive order associated with them looked an awful lot like things we've seen in the past, um, so, as did the Russia sanctions. So, you know, thus far, we're not seeing any real changes. We're seeing sanctions that are uh, giving very broad authority to the Treasury Department uh, to target whatever sectors it thinks need to be targeted. Um, but we're not seeing blanketed, blanket sanctions. Um, so right now, the more things change, the more they stay the same. But uh, this overall review isn't finished by any means. It's going to take at least months to complete. Um, and at that time, maybe we will see some changes. Brett, thank you very much. Um, Nathan, you're absolute expert on the technology and all of these things. So how can and should technology help firms with their sanctions compliance, given we potentially have a, an evolving picture here? Yeah, thanks, Susanna. Some really interesting points there from Brett. And, you know, I couldn't agree with him more that we're in an incredibly complex sanctions landscape. And it's, you know, organisations are looking at the domestic issues, they're looking at regional issues, and then they're overlaying that with international sanctions, which have traditionally been used. So, you know, a lot of organisations are telling us that they're being left in a situation where they effectively have to choose which country's sanctions they will break. And, you know, the, the scenario in Hong Kong down in Asia in this part of the world is, is a particularly poignant one where you've got organisations being torn between competing sanctions drivers coming out of Beijing and out of Washington. So, there is really no technology solution to many of these issues. That's one of the great challenges, you know, when they're political issues and policy issues, uh, technology just can't 
wave a magic wand and solve those things. So organisations are having to be really adaptable and come up with technology solutions, but then, of course, combine that with their human intelligence. And that's probably the, the point that I'd really stress here is that even when you're relying on technology to help you, you know, have a really granular approach to your transactions, to to know your transaction rather than knowing your customer, that's that's the way things are going. You've still got to overlay that with with great people and, and great human intelligence. So, you know, we're seeing this geopolitical complexity get worse, really. Unfortunately, it's not getting better, which is what a lot of people had hoped with some big political changes in recent months. But, um, you know, we are very much in unprecedented terrain on that front. And Brett's mentioned the, you know, the unilateral sanctions, the targeted sanctions, which puts a lot of pressure on on teams to be ensuring that, you know, their organisation isn't doing business with bad actors, but at the same time, they're not locking up transactions that are legitimate transactions with legitimate customers. So I think the political instability that led to a lot of issues for banks in the past three or four years has had a kind of a hangover and we haven't we haven't seen, you know, we're seeing a legacy effect of that political in instability that's still playing out. Um, there's there's a lot of tension on the global rules-based order, which is a big problem for organisations that are working their way through this sanctions landscape. So I think technology has a lot to offer, but uh, probably, Susanna, the key message would be, you know, as always, that just has to be overlaid with great skilled people and organisations will make a big mistake if they think that technology alone is a solution to these issues. I have to say I couldn't agree more. I mean, one of the things I have written about repeatedly lately is the need for skills and for folks to up their skill sets. And I would suggest that is in both firms and indeed regulators themselves. And we might even add governments into that as well, because bad rules, bad sanctions help absolutely nobody um, and certainly don't deter the bad actors. Now, Brett, I mentioned FATF in my introduction, and they've published several updates on how criminals continue to exploit the pandemic and the, and the subsequent crisis. They're mounting cases of counterfeiting medical goods, cybercrime, investment fraud, charity fraud, abuse of economic stimulus measures. I mean, it's a shopping list of things they're doing wrong. So where are we now and what's the latest out of FATF? Sure. Yes, we've most certainly seen a very creative uh, criminal activity uh, around COVID, uh, taking advantage of uh, various government programs, um, you know, selling fake personal protective equipment, selling non-existent equipment. Uh, here in the United States, uh, we also saw some signs that the uh, drug cartels uh, were investing their money uh, via third parties uh, into uh, personal protective equipment deals. Um, th there's really been no end of, of these schemes. And, you know, perhaps we'll turn a corner uh, once uh, a sufficient number of people are vaccinated around the world and uh, some of this uh, COVID eases up a bit. But at the moment, obviously, financial institutions need to remain on guard and conducting uh, 
uh, maximum due diligence uh, to know who the parties are involved in these uh, various transactions and deals uh, that are in any way related to, for instance, personal protective equipment uh, because of the flood of new players that came in and uh, many of them with criminal links. Uh, so uh, definitely uh, the goal is to, to keep up that particular uh, protective stance. Um, in terms of FATF, uh, they had obviously issued a paper last May uh, that very thoroughly laid out many of these schemes uh, that they updated late last year. And uh, early this year, uh, they put out a statement that was uh, fairly interesting uh, and that touched Susanna on some of the things you mentioned earlier um, in terms of the increased use of technology uh, as an onboarding tool. Uh, with less uh, customers coming in to branches to open accounts, uh, the need to conduct um, due diligence and, and take other account opening steps uh, via an online uh, venue. And uh, I, that was one of the uh, issues that, that FATF really looked at uh, closely in its most recent statement. Uh, it noted that uh, criminals used, have used the sharp increase in an online activity to develop target malware, uh, targeted malware campaigns, ransomware, phishing attacks, uh, fake links to government stimulus packages, um, really just outlining uh, not only the threats uh, that tech-savvy criminals pose, um, but also uh, really advocating the use of technology as a, a sort of a means of combating this activity. So you had mentioned the synthetic fraud uh, problem that has popped up in some circles. Um, you know, FATF mentions in its statement, you know, that there is some onboarding technology that really doesn't work that well. So I think one message would be that financial institutions need to carefully vet the technology that they choose to use um, and uh, probably um, cooperating and discussing amongst themselves uh, to, to kind of figure out which uh, third party vendors are, are uh, creating the products that are truly working might be a, a wise step to take. Um, but I mean, you know, FATF says they, they want to explore the opportunities that uh, the new technology presents. And that is very much in line with uh, what's going on in the United States right now. Uh, the AML Act of 2020, uh, sort of one of its key facets is that it wants to take a better look at use of technology uh, in the AML space and see, you know, really push the edge in terms of uh, what can be done using technology. And uh, as I think, uh, Susanna, you mentioned, and Nath as well, you know, you can't replace human beings with technology, but probably, uh, you know, the, the AML world and the fight against dirty money could be improved uh, with the use of, of better technology. And I, I think FATF is really pushing that concept right now. Thank you. Yes, I think I mean, FATF, if, if you're not as a compliance officer or a prevention money laundering officer already totally wired into FATF, I really would make sure you subscribe and are fully aware of what they're saying. Um, Nath, with such a breadth of potential financial crime and really some very inventive cr criminal activity can, to consider, what does good begin to look like now for firms to just tackle all of this? Yeah, that's a great question, Susanna. I mean, the expectations upon organisations are just, they're ever increasing. 
So we're seeing regulators, as Brett said, expecting a lot from organisations now in their, particularly in their AML CTF function, where they're expected to be more effective. That's a big push coming out of the Financial Action Task Force for uh, territories and jurisdictions, as well as the organisations that are operating in those jurisdictions. And there's a huge expectation now to be more timely. And I think that's something that has really come to the fore in the last couple of years, where in the past, you know, AML was very reactive, uh, you know, particularly compared to fraud control, where fraud mitigation was very time sensitive. You were saving the bank's money effectively by being good at that. We're now seeing AML increasingly moving in that direction, and we're seeing it increasingly overlap with fraud. You know, the, the silos there are becoming more and more irrelevant as these threats become more prolific and more creative and more effective. So what does good look like? I think a couple of points, flexibility. So the threat landscapes mutating faster than a string of rogue RNA to use a topical analogy. And that's, you know, that's the big challenge for organisations. The typologies reports that used to come out every year, now really they need to be coming out every week. Um, and the cyberspace has been very good at at doing that. But I think on the money laundering and financial crime space, there hasn't been that same industry partnership that's allowed the sharing of threats in a real-time manner or near real-time. So flexibility to allow organisations to respond more quickly is critical. Adaptability as well. So, uh, you know, frictionless finance is causing huge challenges, massive challenges. There's this expectation around speed of transactions, which is great from a consumer point of view, and regulators are often driving that from the payment side and the customer experience side. But at the same time, that speed of transactions is making counter fraud and AML really difficult. And those funds can disappear so quickly now, they can cross borders with the proverbial click of a mouse. So organisations have to be so adaptable to be able to respond to that in a meaningful way so that AML is not just mopping up after the crash, it's more preemptive. And another thing that is really typical of good organisations is collaboration. So that can be internally where you're seeing this link up between departments like fraud, AML sanctions, HR, you know, departments that might not have been so closely aligned. HR is a big one because you're now seeing distributed workforces and suddenly there's this elevated risk of internal staff being compromised. You've got devices at home, all of these issues. So the internal collaboration is crucial, but then so is the regulatory relations aspect and collaborating with regulators and really realising that regulators and financial institutions are working to the same end, which is a clean, a fair, a stable, a well-governed financial sector, which benefits everyone. And of course, the growth of public-private partnerships. So organisations that are really active participants in that are way ahead of the game. And it's probably got to the point, Susanna, where the challenge now is not do you want to be a part of those partnerships, but it's more a challenge of, you know, we're not in the tent and we really want to be. So partnerships have reached the point now where they need to scale to allow a greater number of organisations in because they're going to be crucial in this fight that we're all part of. 
And probably a fourth thing that often gets overlooked is creativity. So organisations need to be creative. They need to encourage creativity within their AML teams. And penetration testing is a good example of that where, you know, really to be good at cyber fraud and, and cyber crime mitigation, you need to be able to think like a criminal and, and be in advance of them like a game of chess. And AML teams, I think, are really starting to get that now. They understand that the low-level aspects of AML, the more you know, uh, less interesting, more procedural type of skills are getting automated by technology and that's fantastic and that's freeing teams up to be more creative more strategic more innovative so i think we're seeing a real recognition of that now in aml teams and that's just a wonderful thing yeah i'd, I'd have to agree and then that creativity and that initiative and that if you like blue sky thinking on these things is just what we are going to need to help mitigate or hopefully defend against cyber attacks. And you can hardly open a newspaper or a website without seeing the latest headlines on cyber attacks. So one of the issues, one of the many, many issues, Brett, is that cyber attacks and ransomware are being paid in digital currency. And there are all sorts of concerns around the perception of digital currency and its untraceability and its use for illicit purposes. So what should firms consider in this space and is digital currency truly untraceable? Sure, those are very good questions and and questions that have been asked for several years. And I think we're finally starting to to get an answer. Um, And I say that because, you know, the colonial pipeline attack really highlighted uh, the role of blockchain forensics and analytics. Uh, which is a, uh, an expertise that has been uh, being developed by a number of firms, uh, private sector firms, uh, over the past few years. Um, you know, some of them have been collecting data, blockchain data, um, related to various cryptocurrencies, um, and developing, uh, using that data along with proprietary methods uh, to find ways to actually track uh, cryptocurrency flows. Um, this uh, colonial pipeline attack, um, you know, the experts that I've talked to, uh, you know, they say that these uh, individuals who were involved in this uh, ransomware attack uh, have really attracted a lot of uh, unwanted attention to themselves and uh, could actually be in a fair amount of trouble. Uh, Last year, we saw a number of successes, uh, at least in the United States, um, in terms of tracking cryptocurrency or virtual currency that was linked to illicit activity. Uh, In November, uh, there was uh, about a billion dollars seized that had been linked to the now defunct Silk Road online black market. Uh, U.S. authorities also disrupted two terrorism financing campaigns uh, that utilized cryptocurrency donations, uh, arrested three people uh, allegedly associated with that high-profile Twitter hack last year, Uh, shut down the largest ever child pornography site and seized uh, hundreds of cryptocurrency addresses uh, linked to North Korea affiliated hackers. And, you know, all of these successes uh, involved uh, external expertise uh, from people who really understand uh, blockchain forensics and analysis. So, I mean, there's still great concern in the United States and uh, Treasury Secretary Yellen 
has expressed concerns very publicly about the financial threat financial crime threat posed by uh, virtual currencies, cryptocurrencies. Um, but on the other hand, uh, law enforcement really seems, at least in these uh, high-profile cases, uh, to be finding ways to, to track these funds. And uh, I was told by certain individuals that with this colonial pipeline attack, it's very likely uh, that authorities, to some degree, were able to track these transactions in real time, uh, despite the fact they involve cryptocurrency. So uh, I, I think at least the message that some would like to throw out there is that, uh, no, this is not completely anonymous. Uh, so, you know, those involved in ransomware attacks and other illicit activity involving cryptocurrency, um, they may be hidden in dark corners, uh, but there are bright lights that can be shown on them uh, should the government and its uh, facilitators uh, choose to go after them. So, you know, I will be interested to keep an eye on this case and see uh, whether or not these funds, this uh, nearly $5 million in ransom that were paid as part of the Colonial Pipeline attack uh, are ultimately tracked down. And uh, I suppose in that sense, uh, the proof will be in the pudding. Yes, and, and actually, it would be great if they were very publicly tracked down. That may put quite a dent in, uh, shall we say, the attraction of ransomware. But that doesn't really take away from the fact that cyber attacks are so prevalent and so almost normalised now. So, Nath, I mean, cyber resilience, cyber hygiene, however you want to badge it, what can firms begin to do in this very difficult landscape to bolster their defences against all of this? Mm, yeah, I mean, it's, it is the challenge of the age that we live in. And it's interesting to see central banks all of a sudden around the world getting a lot more interested in the nexus between financial crime, AML and, and cyber risk, particularly in jurisdictions uh, like Australia, for instance, where the financial intelligence unit doesn't sit inside a central bank and all of a sudden you're seeing this connection getting formed between these agencies that might have been quite disparate a few, even a few years ago. So I think that's a really profound change and it shows the scale of the threat that nation states and their companies are facing. It's going a lot further now than sort of financially motivated cybercrime, it's uh, quite often politically motivated and organisations are up against state-based actors, which is a whole new level of threat and it's a completely different playing field than dealing with financially motivated actors. So probably, Susanna, it comes back again to those qualities that we talked about earlier, the flexibility and adaptability, the ability to collaborate and the ability to really invest in your people and their creativity and their, their intellect and ability to respond to these challenges. Uh, you know, there isn't a roadmap to a lot of these problems. They're, they're evolving, you know, as we've seen through the pandemic, things are evolving and we're kind of having to make the rule book up as we go. So that's an environment where your people are more important than ever. Uh, and thankfully in the compliance and AML sector, there's amazing people that love what they do and really want to stay abreast of these challenges, which is which is a fantastic thing. So, you know, uh, I think organisations need to really 
critically they need to be remaining up to date on the threat landscape. And, you know, Brett just spoke about many of the new things that we're seeing with cryptocurrencies and digital assets, which are, you know, it's, it's true, they are a boon for money laundering. But then again, they're also a boon for financial intelligence because of the nature of blockchains and the data, the indelible data that they create. But, you know, as, as soon as, you know, it's still that cat and mouse game, as soon as authorities begin to learn about how to de-anonymise some of these transactions, the growth of the privacy coin space and tumblers and other technologies for anonymising transactions is moving in leaps and bounds as well. So it's, it's really, you know, it's, it's a dynamic space and it's not an easy challenge for authorities and FIUs. Um, and again, just that geopolitical landscape is really important for organisations to consider. So where are your major threats coming from? If they're financially motivated, that's a whole set of challenges, but perhaps it's something more insidious and we're really seeing the rise of state-based attacks which have a whole different motivation. So, uh, you know, that's an area where organisations, regulators and governments need to work very closely together. And of course, uh, just to mention the issue of remote teams. So how has your organization's risk landscape changed with the move to remote working? And probably more importantly, what does the new normal mean for cyber resilience in your firm? So is hybrid working going to be a reality going forward permanently? For a lot of organizations, the answer to that is yes. And so that means we really can't think that this is just a phase that we're going through and then we'll go back to a more traditional, um, safer, you know, environment where people are working in the same physical location behind the company's firewall. More than likely, people are going to be doing, um, you know, a couple of days at home, a couple of days in the office permanently. And that then is in some respects, a nightmare for IT. So, you know, um, that is that is something that organisations have to be ready to permanently adapt to. It gives greater resilience and there's a whole bunch of benefits with that, but it does pose some challenges, which I think we're going to see organisations having to permanently adjust to going forward. Yes, I think adaptability and keeping just up to date has to be the absolute central thread on that. And, and coming back to Brett for a moment, we mentioned technology and the potential impact of the AML Act 2020. Keeping up to date again, what else do firms need to consider on the AML Act? Because it's got some particularly very big teeth. It, it certainly does. Um, I mean, it has many broad implications, uh, many of which we won't even know until uh, Financial uh, Crimes Enforcement Network has actually written the rules uh, implementing uh, much of the law. Uh, but you know there were some elements that came into force uh, instantly um, as soon as it was enacted, uh, one of which is increased subpoena power for U.S. law enforcement. Uh, the, AM, uh, the AML Act included a provision that allows U.S. authorities uh, to demand information about any account held by a bank which holds a U.S. correspondent relationship. Uh, you know, U.S. law enforcement, uh, ha, you know, they've been asked about this at senior levels, and they say, you know, this is going to be used on a limited basis. 
And uh, apparently it's going to have to be cleared through not only the Justice Department, but the State Department. Uh, But nonetheless, this is certainly an element of the law that uh, foreign financial institutions uh, probably want to be aware of and uh, may even want to have a plan in place uh, in terms of how to respond uh, if they get one of these subpoenas uh, to discuss this uh, with their legal counsel um, uh, ahead of time, just um, because of the, uh, you know, the potential for a conflict of law situation uh, where you'll be uh, possibly forced to either violate your own country's privacy laws or to uh, create a situation where you're not responding to a U.S. subpoena and uh, possibly putting your correspondent relationship in jeopardy. Uh, so it's a, a very serious situation. And as we know, you know, the Corporate Transparency Act that accompanied the AML Act uh, requires the o- creation of a beneficial ownership registry. And uh, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network has until January 1st of next year uh, to put out its final rule implementing this registry, uh, really spelling out exactly how it will be done. Uh, but from that point, uh, perhaps more importantly for financial institutions, uh, FinCEN will have another year to figure out how it's going to modify its customer due diligence and beneficial ownership rule. And uh, as you mentioned uh, in your introduction, it's not clear uh, if this is going to make if the creation of this registry is going to make uh, customer due diligence uh, easier, if it's going to relieve some burden, or potentially it's going to create many complications, um, such as situations where information collected by a financial institution on beneficial ownership doesn't match with something in the registry and how you resolve those kind of situations. Uh, There are really no end of complexities that uh, could be created as a result of this registry. And uh, it's still at this point unclear uh, what direction, what TAC FinCEN is going to take on this, Um, you know, whether this is going to be an addition to what was already expected from financial institutions or any kind of alleviation of any sort of burden at all. Uh, so, you know, this is a situation where institutions definitely de- to w- follow this space closely um, as these rules develop. Right. Thank you. I have to say, yes, there's just no end of change, literally quite no end of change. Um, I think this has been a fascinating discussion. Thank you both very much. So we're into the sort of the takeaways here, the brief takeaways Nathan, what what would your brief takeaways for people be on on all things financial crime at the moment? I think as always, Susanna, I think it's really important to come back to a positive note. You know, uh, I mean, we've talked about some fairly heavy topics today, but it's also important to remember that it is a really exciting time. You know, this is, it's times of crisis when compliance teams and compliance expertise really shines and this is a time for your team to demonstrate your value to your organization and I think it's a moment unlike any other probably since 2008 with the financial crisis where compliance and risk has the ear of senior management and the board and that's you know for for our space that's a wonderful thing Uh, it's in some ways, when we're going through difficult times and people are really aware of the risk, you could argue that we're in a better space than the complacency that you see when times are really good. And for instance, bubbles are being blown up and vulnerabilities are stacking up in the system. And because 
commercially organizations are doing well they just ignore the risk landscape in a lot of cases so you know it is an exciting time it is a time where you can really shine and prove value and on that note i'd just leave a takeaway thought to ask have we entered a space where there should be a financial crime expert or expertise at the board level and I think that's an interesting idea that seems to be germinating around the industry given the scope of penalties that organisations face for getting this wrong and the level of organisational harm and the reputational harm um, you know I'd say yes we're at that point where organisations need to have risk compliance or AML or all three perhaps embodied in the same person at board level. So that's a huge shift and I think it's an inevitable shift and a really positive shift. And just finally, Susanna, I think there's a takeaway is that there's huge scope for career progression and upskilling at a time like this. So uh, as we're seeing this confluence of departments and the breaking down of silos, a compliance or a risk person that understands machine learning or digital assets like non-fungible tokens or even geopolitics or uh, technology is a huge asset for their organisations. So it's an exciting time. It's a time to learn. It's a time to upskill. But most importantly, it's a time to prove that value to your organisation. Brilliant. And I have to confess, Nath, utterly agree with every one of those. Um, Brett, takeaways from you, from your perspective. Yes, I, I was actually going to agree with uh, Nathan's points as well. And I think uh, particularly the, the, the need to ensure that you're improving your skills and that you're spending some time uh, trying to understand the new technologies um, and understand what direction we're moving uh, in terms of the use of those technologies is vitally important. Uh, I was going to mention that to me, this time reminds me of the time after the enactment of the USA Patriot Act. Um, it's a time when you know institutions really need to be watching uh, closely regulatory developments uh, because you have so many rules that are being uh, developed, um, and you know the. Uh, Treasury Department is calling for a comment from financial institutions uh, for input on how these rules are going to be written. And I think it's vital uh, that whether a financial institution uh, shares its views uh, with the trade organizations that represent it or otherwise provides comment to the Treasury Department, um, they, that's just very important to do. They need to let their voices be heard. Um, uh, because if they don't talk, if they don't speak up now, um, you know it'll be hard to complain about uh, how these rules turn out. Um, so I would say that that is uh, one takeaway and one vital point. Another uh, would be that uh, the Biden administration is still developing its sanctions policy. Um, you know, the last administration was a very much a, obviously a shoot from the hip. Uh, administration when it came to sanctions. You had sanctions being announced on Twitter uh, before the Treasury Department had uh, actually issued anything. Uh, you're not going to see that kind of approach from the Biden administration. Um, you're probably going to see a more uh, uh, perhaps uh, thoughtful, reserved approach uh, that uh, attempts to combine diplomacy with sanctions. Um, but that is a another space that I think uh, financial institutions need to be uh, tracking very closely. And the last thing I would mention is is something that I touched on, 
and that is the importance of uh, blockchain analysis uh, to uh, understanding uh, payment flows uh, linked to cryptocurrencies, uh, whether institutions are doing that internally or doing it uh, with help from consultants or third parties. Uh, I think that is an area uh, that really deserves attention. Goodness, we have covered an awful lot of ground. Thank you so much, Brett. Thank you so much, Nathan. And thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Clarified. Now, I'll drop links to several articles going into more depth in the episode notes. I'll also include a link to the Financial Action Task Force, just in case you haven't already got that to your fingertips. And obviously, the link for further information on Thomson Reuters regulatory intelligence itself. And last but not least, we would very much appreciate it if you take the time to review the podcast. And please do let us know if you have any other suggestions for future topics. Thank you again for listening. Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence.